we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dendro Crawlers, where you have just embarked on an adventure that is light years beyond your comprehension. I'm, I'm just going to add that comprehension on the end there. Uh, I, I like that. Uh, we have an exciting show for you tonight. We've got Krebs, we've got Alton, we've got myself, and we have author Michael Haspel, which all of us are here to talk about a movie that came out long, long ago. And some of you may love it. Some of you may know about it. Some of you may be, what the heck are you talking about? But the movie is called Kroll. Simple as that. There's no fancy things, no subtitles, nothing, just Kroll. It is a movie that came out in the 80s. Uh, if I remember right, it was 83, around was the 83. same time. Mm-hmm. Same time as Empire Strikes Back. So no, no, no. Return of the Jedi. Yeah, Return of the Return Jedi. Jedi. <gasps> oh, man. I messed that up. That's right. Return of the Jedi. I know. Alton's like, Arr! yeah. Um, hey, I'm suffering from heat stroke and uh, <laughs> And now the audience is suffering. Please go on. Yes, I know. I know. So Return of the Jedi. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising that this movie may have been overlooked. I mean, Star Wars is huge. It did win an Academy Award for yeah. greatest movie ever made. So, yes, but then that award got lost. Yes, you know, I, I don't see it. Oh, I was going to say I don't see that on the uh, Blu-ray copy you lent me here, Krebs. I'm sorry, I must have missed it. There's it's a lot a, that Blu-ray copy is missing. Yes, it, it's the Universal Academy Award. You know, the entire galaxy nominated it, and it won that way. Uh, that's why you didn't see it. No, uh, this is a fantastic. Fantastic movie. We're going to enjoy talking about it. This is one of those treasures that we're pulling out. And the best thing is, is we're going to hand this over to Krebs. We're going to let him lead the discussion because this is one of his all-time favorite movies. Um, And I believe Alton has had the chance to see the movie because he has never seen the movie before. Is that up until now? I have never seen the movie before the last 20 minutes. No, no, that's not true. Um, (laughs) No, no, actually, I... I saw this. In fact, actually, this is a question I wanted to ask all of you because this movie is near and dear to my heart. It is precious. It is uh, one of it. I have an, a surprising passion for this film. I didn't even know that I had this passion for this film until I started digging into it more and more. And then I realized, holy smokes, this is, this may, this is one of my most favorite movies of all time. It is not my, it is not the favorite movie of all time, but I love this film. And I am curious for the three of you, what was your first experience with Kroll? I'll share mine after you guys, but what was your first time seeing Kroll? Haspel, let's start with you. Yeah. So my first time seeing Kroll, I want to say, uh, his movie stayed in theater a lot longer back then. So I, uh, we were going to go see Return of the Jedi for the umpteenth time, and it was sold out. And so knew nothing about it, walked into Crawl blind. Um, and at that age, I adored the movie. Uh, I thought it was really good, but there was still a feeling that I might have seen it before. So that's we'll come back to that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then... Uh... Dan, what was your first memory of encountering Kroll? So we saw it at the drive-in. Uh, it was long ago. Oh, that's fantastic. Around the same time, but my, my family did a lot of the drive-in. 
Um, so I remember going to the Redwood Drive-In uh, and, and seeing it there and sitting on top of our truck, you know, wrapped in a blanket, had in the pillow and just mesmerized with what was going on because it was like, holy crap, I have no clue exactly what's going on. Some of this is weird, but at the same time, I can't tear my eyes away from the screen. So, yeah. And then Alton, what's your first memory of Kroll? When did you first encounter it? Uh, so there was this little known podcast that I joined <laughs> called Dungeon Crawlers Radio. And pretty much the only thing that one of my co-hosts talked about for, I don't know, it's beyond my ability to remember. Is it light uh, years beyond your memory? Oh uh, boy, it's light years beyond something, that is for sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, um, I had never heard of the film before coming on to Dungeon Crawlers and Krebs for a long time. I'm sure if any of you go back and play through the audio, somebody can put together a YouTube compilation of all the times Krebs talks about Kroll. And it's always in passing. He's always like, I don't want to get too far into it. I don't want to get too far into it. And then we get off the phone and inevitably it just bubbles over. Uh, but I watched the film specifically for this episode, finished it this morning at 10.30 a.m. You welcome. are a good man. <laughs> You're <are> welcome, says <laughs> Mike Hassel. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, have this, I have this running theory, in it, and it's not perfect, but I have this running theory about like when you encounter Kroll and how it relates to how much you enjoy it. Um, now, for me, the, the, the first time that I encountered Kroll, uh, the first time that I watched it, I was, let's see, it, it, was, it was summer of 1983, because that's when it came out. It came out, uh, when, when you are hearing this episode, it is exactly the 37th anniversary of the release of Kroll. And uh, it was, so it was like summertime, 1983, and my mom, uh, a divorcee at the time, she took me and my older brother, my older sister, I was the youngest. I was only like four and a half at that time. She took us to a double feature and the double feature had another at the time popular film, uh, Strange Brew. Which... <laughs> I love that movie. You have a whole episode on that one. Yeah, what a pairing though. What a weird pairing. <laughs> it, yeah, and you, you, know, you know what's extra weird is I was four and a half then, I'm in my 40s now, and I still remember that was the double feature. No one has had to remind me. Uh, and I remember the, the first movie to show was Strange Brew. And I remember, you know, we got snacks and stuff and we sat down and I'm four and a half. And the humor of the McKenzie brothers just didn't, it was cute, it was adorable. They were in a lot of commercials at the time. Yeah. And, but a whole movie, and I, I fell asleep. I don't even remember, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I remember waking up during that movie when they were having like this, this epic finale hockey game. And there was a goalie oh, that was, that, that alluded to being Darth Vader. And, yeah. and that got my interest. And I watched the end of the movie. I did not understand it. And, um, and then between films, you get an intermission. So, you know, we hit the restrooms, we got some, got a couple more snacks and then we go back in. And I had no idea what the second movie was going to be. And we sat down and there it opens up and there's space. Now, as a kid, the first movie I remember seeing, like my first memory of going to the movie theater was Return of the Jedi. And I, I don't 
I obviously knew enough about Star Wars because I remember being in the theater for Return of the Jedi and I was asking my mom questions. Like when Luke first showed up in his cloak, I asked, is that the Emperor? Because I knew the Emperor was in the movie um, and, and stuff like that. I, I, just didn't, I just didn't know, you know, but I, I knew a lot about Star Wars. And so this opens up and there's like the star field and I'm like, oh, it's a space movie. I'm in, I'm in, I got this. And then, you know, the music starts to swell. It's, uh, it's, it's James Horner's music. It's coming up and um, then you hear this like and this like weird object flies past the screen, does a U-turn and comes back on the opposite side. You've got surround sound going and then all of a sudden the music hits a crescendo and then here comes the glaive streaking across the screen and there's crawl. And I was like, I love this movie already. I want to watch all of it. And I stayed awake for the whole freaking thing at four and a half years old and I watched it entirely and I loved every second of it. Yeah. It was now, now Mike, I, I hope you don't mind my asking, mm-hmm. but uh, how old were you when you saw it in theaters? Mm, now you're asking me to do math. I think I was probably 12. <laughs> probably 12. Okay. So I'm, I'm guessing around there. And, and based on what you said earlier, this is a movie that you genuinely enjoy and that you appreciate to this day. Is that correct? Yeah, and I hadn't I hadn't rewatched it in a long time. So I rewatched it and I came away with with this opinion a couple of different opinions. One, if any movie ever deserved a remake, it's Crawl. Um the the second thing I would say is like the promise of that movie. Um it's it's there, but it's almost like it's ahead of its time, so it's never really fulfilled. But yeah. at the same time, it's also behind its time. <laughs> so, uh, I was I was telling my wife, I said if there was if I was doing the voiceover for a trailer for Crawl, I would say something like, you know, before there was Legend, before there was Labyrinth, before there were the Lord of the Rings trilogies. But after there was Excalibur and after Star Wars and after all the Errol <laughs> Flynn films and after Ray Harryhausen, there was Crawl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Crawl has like, it's one of those movies that you sit down and Alton, your view is going to be super important here. So you sit down, you watch the movie. It's like an hour and 40 minutes. Um, it is, sw- d- describe to the audience what your impression of the of the like like what kind of movie is it what was what kind of experience did you have your first time this morning 121 minutes running yep 121 minutes oh it's two hours excuse me like i i should know these things but anyway so it's a two hour (laughs) okay so you watched it this morning and it was your first time what kind of movie is this what, what genre is it how would you describe it Okay, so I'm trying to present this in a way that is not inflammatory because I have plenty of episode left to piss everybody off. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Um, it is, it is um, uh, drawing on some of the things that were said earlier, actually. It is Errol Flynn meets Excalibur, but now Star Wars has come out, so we've got to be kind of Star Wars-y, but not enough that it's Star Wars because we really just wanted to be an Errol Flynn film the, full, the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You're hitting on some salient points, by the way, and we'll yeah. discuss all those things. My, and that's my why I asked answer, you. 
my answer to when people ask me what genre is crawl, I just say yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, my my first foray into dungeon crawlers was I was brought on as a guest to discuss rifts by palladium it's their rpg Mm -hmm. and and to discuss the palladium system in general and um while i cut my teeth on a couple of different rpgs including D &D when i was younger uh when i was like in my early teens i moved over to palladium and i've never really gone back i've played a few other systems but in terms of like favorite systems i've never really gone back and uh when i was describing it on the show i called it the every game because rifts is literally capable of being every game it's very much like GURPS right um in in that sense it's extremely flexible in terms of the context and the domain and so you you can play you you can do sword and sorcery and 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 different kinds of magics and or you can do bionics and cybernetics and cyberpunk and or you can do uh high technology and space war like you can do everything it's the every game uh crawl suffers a bit from that and I say suffers uh, double-edgedly. Um, it, 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 when, when they went to go build the film, they, called, they, they build it as a sci-fi fantasy. Now, what had happened historically, and since we've hit on this, I don't mind jumping into this hole just really quick, if you guys don't mind. But um, what had happened historically was that uh, Star Wars was this completely unforeseen success in 1977. They did it again in 1980 with Empire Strikes Back, and it was just an easy-peasy home run in 1983 when they launched Return of the Jedi. During that time between 77 and 83, and uh, I believe this actually is, is, uh, this would be a good time to sort of like take a nod at Mike's podcast as well, where you're focusing on like the brilliant films of 82. Mm -hmm. But during that time, all these other films um, with this awakened um, lust for uh, Arthurian legend blended with fantasy and or sci-fi. There were all these films that came out and it was like a deluge. And most uh, most of the films that you can find now from that period of time are laughable garbage. They're on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yes, yeah, they are. Like, like, like Ator, uh, yeah. The Fighting yeah. Eagle, oh, or um, The Sword Ator and the Sorcerer. Awesome. Ator. <laughs> Especially when yes. he's riding the horse yes. across the field and you see the ATVs zipping by in the background. <laughs> yeah, Ator is fantastic. You know, it's a, it, it's a film about a warrior that you're supposed to root for despite the fact that he is like engaged to his sister and trying to like have an affair with another sister. Yeah. It's a very interesting film. Anyway, and then you have and then you have uh, like your Hunter of the Future, oh, Y-O-R. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one, that one is also sci-fi fantasy in a way. Well, it's more like it's more like um, sci-fi and sword nose. But though there's a little bit of sword. Yeah, it's like it's like sci-fi fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, a film that was not as successful as they wanted it to be. Uh, but to be honest with you, it should have been more successful. Dragon Slayer. Uh, oh, Dragon yeah. Slayer. That's which, by one the of way, my favorites. With Peter I had, oh, man. Yeah, with Peter Great McNichol. Film. I had never watched that movie until last week. What? what? I yeah, have always missed watched, out. You've never witch, witnessed the movie with uh, Vermithorax? Oh. Yeah, Vermithorax pejorative. The best <laughs> dragon name ever. Dude. Yeah. And, and having just watched it a week ago, I thought it was fabulous. It's brilliant. I, it, it apparently did not do well in the box office, right. but not as well as it was projected to do. And that's an important part of this story. Because when the film Kroll was first written, it was not called Kroll. It was called The Dragons of Kroll. 
in 81-ish. And then then Dragon Slayer happened and it didn't do well. And that caused them to kind of rethink some things. In Kroll, you have these, uh, these enemies called the Slayers. And in the original script, the Slayers were just guys in black armor with cylindrical helmets and T-slits for, you know, T-slots in their helmets for, for speaking and for, for sight. Um, they were just knights. It was just a medieval period. And what's, what, what's extra funny is that the choice of calling it dragons, the Dragons of Kroll was purely a marketing move. The movie at no point had dragons. <laughs> yeah. At no point. Wow. Uh, but then Dragon Slayer failed. And there were a number of other sword and sorcery films that failed. And the ones that didn't fail kind of set a different tone and they kind of sucked up the success of the genre. Um, Beastmaster was one of them that kind of came out mm-hmm. on top in the end. Um, even though if you watch it today, it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh that's bad. Yeah, Mark, um, Mark Singer. Hmm. Mark, Sing- Mark Singer is always the best though. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the films were they were almost always the same tone, the same tropes, just just always writing the same thread. And so then um, they went back and they revisited the script and they're like, as they were brainstorming one day, it was suggested, wait a second, what if it wasn't just medieval earth? What if instead this took place on another planet? And what if the slayers weren't knights of a warring kingdom? What if the Slayers were aliens from yet another planet? Because at this time, what other film was successful? Aliens. Aliens was also successful. And, and so they were like, okay, well, let's do Arthurian legend, a little bit of Excalibur in there, definitely some Star Wars, throw in some H.R. Geiger, and we've got something magical. Yeah. And that's where, that's where Kroll came from. Now, hang on a second. Now, I know I've been a little long-winded, but hang tight. <laughs> When you first watch the movie, it starts off in space. You see the glaive traveling through the stars, uh, but that's mostly for the title card. And then you see like this spaceship that is more mountain than it is ship. Yep. It lands on the planet. And then we go into the setting of the story, right? And from that point forward, for like the next, I don't know, 15 minutes, it's very sword and sorcery. It's just, it, it, it's people on horses wearing armor with swords. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. They don't have regular swords. They have yeah. lightning swords. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have lightsabers. That would be copyrighted. pretty close looking in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> but they do have like these odd sparks. You know, my buddy and I were talking about that too, about what's the source of this thing. Because ultimately, it's not, the weapons of Kroll, by the way, Kroll is the name of the planet not yes. the kingdom. It's not the name of the person. It's not the name of the beast. It and is it plays no bearing on the plot. It, <laughs> it is, it, except for the setting, except for the setting. Uh, setting is not plot. Yeah, friend. Literally, <laughs> literally not important at all. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, forgotten realms, changing the name to Toril. Yeah. That's yeah. the game's game. Toril. But hang tight. You guys are there. You're watching the movie for the first time. The slayers invade. And then Colwyn, kills a slayer for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then there's that magical moment. <laughs> they, make, they make this wonderful sound, which I discovered only recently is actually a totally popular canned sound that was replete through monster movies in like the 50s and 60s. Um, but they had like slowed it down and combined it with some other modulation. Yeah. Uh, and 
but but you if you kill a slayer and and by the way a slayer is basically like a one hp ad in D D. uh but like you you stab them anywhere and you and you their heads even if you stab them like in the chest their heads crack open like an egg and their bodies fall over and there's this there's this mysterious thing what elton you saw it for the first time <laughs> this morning what happens when you kill a slayer yeah, so here, here's the thing is you keep talking about how when you see it for the first time, but you have somebody who's seen it for the first time and not <laughs> consumed any extracurricular material. Uh, so uh, 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 let me give it to you straight, fam. He hit on a very important point earlier, which is that uh, Alien was pretty popular. And so there's this thing that kind of whenever a Slayer dies, again, for any reason, they just kind of pop open and this thing just barely out of camera kind of slithers into the ground and disappears. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the Slayers are like the equivalent of a Stormtrooper in Star Wars. You know, one oh, hit, they're dead. Yeah. 100%. It, it, it doesn't it, matter. They, it doesn't matter where you hit them, they die. Yes. Which, it's like, yeah. who, who would wait? They've got this... M- fancy looking armor but it doesn't matter where they get hit they die and then this thing explodes out of their head goes into the ground yep i'm yep. guessing retreats back to the mountain ship yeah and, and it's it it begs and this is like some of the stuff i was saying about if if the movie deserves a remake it's crawl because yeah. that's one of the promises that i talk about is the first time you see that now i had completely forgotten about that so when i rewatched the movie i saw that i was like whoa, that's really cool. Like, are these guys like drones? Are they being piloted by these by these slime eels that are in their heads or whatever? And so as soon as they take damage, they're just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go get yeah. a new drone body and come back. Well, um, me and Krebs talked about this. It's not even, it doesn't even explain it in the novelization. There's no. like nothing. There, no. there, is, there is a novel, which uh, Mr. Haspelin, uh, or Haspel, excuse me, Mr. Haspel pulled it up uh, and showed it yes. to me. He got a copy. Last time we actually had Mr. Haspel on the show, um, Dan mentioned that he already had the a copy of the book. And I was like, why don't I have a copy of the book? I'm the diehard. So I ordered it, read through it. And what's interesting is that the book um, is, it, it's a, an adaptation of the final script that they went to shoot with. Uh, because the script went through several iterations. I do, uh, I recently received as a gift a printout, not an original, but a printout of like, I think it was the third edition, the, the, the third revision, third version, that's what it is, version three of The Dragons of Krolls. So that was before they finalized it into the sci-fi fantasy that it is, uh, so that I could see all the things they did. And it was wildly different. But the book follows the shoot, the, the original script that they decided on um, when it was just Kroll. And it goes into so much more detail, explains so many more things, has longer conversations, is decidedly British in its, in its uh, oh, voice, yeah. decidedly British, uh, and all this other stuff, right? And still, even with the book, the, the two-part comic book, which I have, the liner notes from the uh, soundtrack, which explains a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff as well, which I have the behind the scenes special, which you can see on YouTube and also it's on the DVD, but not on the Blu-ray. Sorry, Elton. Uh, And all these other sources that I have at no point is it explained why these, for lack of a better term, headworms escape the body. And no matter what surface they're on, they always go into the ground. 
when you see a slayer die for the first time, it's actually like on a marble floor in a, in a castle. And um, it's a brilliant piece of cinematography because I think it was just straight sheer luck for the most part, but um, a piece of helmet obfuscates the physical exit of the headworm, but the headworm goes basically into the ground with no explanation of how it does so or where it's going. And that is how every Slayer dies. It doesn't matter if they're on, on rocks, on sand, on marble tile, it does not matter. The headworm goes into the ground and disappears and there is no explanation. Now that sounds, <laughs> that sounds terribly like, oh, that's just bad storytelling. What is this? What, what, what the heck was that? Um, however, Haspel has hit on something because this movie lends itself to so many opportunities for fan theory and like in a good way. There are so many things that are just not explained in the movie. They'll say something in passing, accept it as true and move on, which on the surface feels bad until you take a moment and think about it. And then it becomes this opportunity for a whole story to unfold. So we'll get back to that in just a moment. I actually want to change gears. There's so many back to it. looks like he's dying to say something though. He I know. Is, I he is like just because because here. Alton Alton <laughs> Alton is a phenomenal storyteller. He is amazing at, at crafting narratives and delivering them with the right level of drama and enthusiasm and punch. Uh, so I can only imagine how much he hates this film. And I would love to hear now, Alton, this is the part of the show where you get to give us your bare bones, blunt review. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Um, I, I think that you hit on something very important. I'm actually glad that you talked about the reveal of the slayers, you know, dying, disappearing, burrowing back into the earth. Um, and I'm also very glad um, that um, it, that you guys set it up as something that was set up and then never delivered upon because that was my experience with the film. I do mm. not believe that this was a poorly written film. However, I do believe, uh, again, not having any information outside of having only seen the film once this morning, I do believe that there was a lot, there were many, many, many revisions, but there were also a lot of instances of meddling and poor editing. Oh, what would make you think that? this film. <laughs> you are absolutely right. Because you are absolutely right. The thing, that, the thing that I would say is, and I had this conversation at great length with Tasha after we watched it this morning, my wife, um, is that there were never any instances that stand out to me in which something broke a rule. There was never an instance that I could feel or that I observed at the first watch through in which something like blatantly disregarded something that came before it or that it didn't follow logically with something somewhere. However, there were many, 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 many instances in literally every scene, every act of the film in which something was not set up and then paid off yes. where something just yeah. happened. And in the context of everything else that was going on, it wasn't like out of place necessarily, but there were a lot of there were there were a lot of scenes that were spent looking like they were setting up things that then never turned into anything. 
and there were a lot of problems that needed solving that all of a sudden there was a solution that in hindsight made kind of sense, but there was nothing that set up into it to establish it as a possible outcome. Yeah. And so the, the general feeling that I got from watching the film, I believe that Kroll as a franchise, as a universe and as a story is actually good. I think that there is a lot of space to explore and I think that there is a lot of good to appreciate and love about it. However, Kroll as a film is a very subpar piece of storytelling. I I can see that. I feel that had the editors been more judicious in cutting entire scenes out to enable to flesh Mm -hmm. out other scenes to a point, the film would have felt more satisfactory and it would have left them with more material to stand on later down the line. Um, But it felt like a series of vignettes with half of the information or three quarters of the information Mm -hmm. filled out enough that it was, you could tell what was there and you could read between the lines and understand, okay, yes, this makes sense in the context of the universe, but not enough that to a casual lay person without any outside material, you would be able to understand how it Mm -hmm. fit into the greater scheme or why it was important. And the editing you're talking about, like, um, I don't want to dogpile on the negative stuff, but it's like, for me, this is why, yeah, this is why I say like it deserves a remake because, because there are certain things that happen that are frustrating when you watch it in modern times. For instance, um, when the princess Lysa or, um, is Lissa, Lissa, that's right. Um, is, is, uh, when the castle gets attacked, obviously there's going to be spoilers. And what we're talking about, she, she says that they should fight together. Right. So she clearly thinks she can fight with him with, uh, with a uh, Colwyn who she's marrying. And he kind of hurries her out of the castle and like, just get to safety. Um, her guards get ambushed by some slayers. She grabs a sword and, and I was waiting for a payoff for that. And it no. never, never comes. Like I, I was like in a modern movie, that's where we get to see Lissa kill like 10 slayers by herself until she's overpowered or something. Right. Um, which that, would that, be great. That's where she would show that she's Colwyn's equal. Colwyn is a warrior. Yeah. yeah. He's, he, he's a prince of another kingdom. Uh, Lissa and Colwyn are the children of, of, two different kingdoms that have been at odds with each other. Think very much like Capulet Montague in a way, um, mm-hmm. but they are unifying their kingdoms to fight the slayers. What will, which is not very well explained in the film either that, that the beast and the slayers have been on Kroll long enough that now the tensions between kingdoms is no longer more important than saving the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these two are going to marry to unify their kingdoms and then thus make a, a larger army. Uh, and you're right. She does. In fact, what's funny is I didn't really pick up on this until last week when I watched it again. And um, Lissa is seen like throwing a sword to a guard so that because mm-hmm. he gets disarmed. And so she helps she helps him fight off another slayer. Um, but you're right. She picks up her own sword and she's got that in her hand. And 1983, she never gets to use it. Yeah. 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 yeah and then that- the- oh, I'm sorry, Dean. No, I was just saying that's that was kind of the mindset, you know, the damsel in distress. We have to keep her in that. You know, nowadays we would have, you know, if we do get a reboot of this, you would see that. Yeah. That scene. And then the storytelling editing stuff that Alton was talking about, 
Um, the biggest one that I would move is I would move the, the acquisition of the glaive scene to later in the film. Yeah. Because yeah. it's literally, he gets it in the first act and then never uses it. Yeah. And then when you Which can see what Chekhov's it does. Gun. And even, it, it even, is. even beyond that, though, they, they do nothing to develop it. There's no right. additional lore. They don't talk about it again. Mm-hmm. He goes to try to use it and is immediately told, don't. Don't. For yes. mysterious I reasons. Yeah. I would have rather seen him try to use it and then it doesn't work because he... He hasn't figured out how to use it, or yeah. he's Green not worthy hubris. to use it yet. Exactly. Something. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the items that that's one of the million items that the book explains better than the movie. And I do want to make it clear: the book is not long. It's like yeah. a little. It's like what is it? Three hundred and twenty-eight pages, three hundred fifty-six pages, something like that. Yeah, and um, it's, it's and it's not like it's it's like double space and. It's not. A book. Yeah, it's 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 not a long book. Yeah, and it's actually two hundred and thirty-seven pages. Yeah, I thought. Oh wow, I thought it was longer. Um, yeah, and, and yet I still thought it was short. <clears throat> um, but there are myriad things the book explains better than the mm-hmm. film, or goes into more depth, or or because of of the power of the book of of written material where you can hear the inner thoughts of other characters. Right. Um, you you get a perspective that the film just doesn't or can't offer depending and uh the other thing about the book is that even though it explains several things better than the film does it also does not do so ham-fistedly it still leaves tons of interpretive openings uh while it'll add some more detail it'll add some more um like impetus but it won't it won't pull a Naruto and just explain the full history of why this thing is right. It won't go detail by detail. It won't pull a Tolkien and tell you that the trees have feelings and describe them with flavors, right? Like it's not going to do that. Uh, but it does explain in better detail, the relationship of the glaive to Colwyn, why he's the one who's able to get it in the book. Uh, when he pulls it from the lava flow, um, it talks about how it, it, it hints, it hints at how he's able to do that without destroying his own flesh. And the moment he holds it, there is a bond that forms that he can't quite explain between him and the glaive. And he's even compelled to throw it away from himself for a moment. And then it returns boomerang style. And, and despite its five blades, it lands harmlessly in the palm of his hand. Uh, he does it one time in the cave and he did it because he felt compelled to do it. Uh, then when he gets down off the mountain and he's down with Yanir and he throw, which, which is, which is for those who haven't seen the movie, Yanir is the Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's the Merlin. Yep. He's the magical yeah. man. The guardian. Guardian. The, the guardian. guardian the hero quest. Yep. The, the wise, the wise old man. And Colwyn goes to throw the glaive again and Yanir stops him. And, and they have one of my all-time favorite exchanges. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I teach computer science at a college. And one of, the topics, <laughs> one of the topics that we talk about is called recursion. And recursion is a beautiful coding tool, but it can be used, if you use it poorly, it can be destructive or it can be confounding. And so when I teach recursion for the first time, I don't want students to be afraid of it, but I show them 10 seconds of crawl. And it's the moment where in the film, Colwyn goes to throw the glaive for, for in the film the first time mm-hmm. and he's with Yanir and Yanir stops him and Yanir says, do not use it until you need it. 
And Colwyn <laughs> looks down at him and says, well, how will I know? And then Yanir, without even hesitating, goes, you will know. And that's the end of it. And I, yep. show, I show that exchange and I say, that's how you should feel about recursion. Right? <laughs> so, um, but you're right. They don't really explain it in the film. But there's more explanation in the book. And yeah, I would almost we'll say, I would almost say that if you have not seen the film and you're listening to this, um, before watching the film, go find this trade paperback copy of Crawl and read it. Read it first because it's because it's the story shines through, and yeah. you won't get you'll you won't get it's it won't feel as tropey as the film does. That's yeah. true. And and then when you watch the film you'll have already figured out the whole story and you can just see it as an adaptation of the book yeah. instead of instead of like this kind of film that has a ton of promise and and failed in a lot of ways in the execution. Well, I mean, Speaking we never that. we never really get to see Liam Neeson fight. I mean, the one time he goes to do something he dies. But I mean, do. by the way everybody, Liam Neeson's in the movie. Yeah, I mean, what a waste of a fantastic character. There's no I will find you. And when I do, I will throat chop you. Well, yeah. he didn't have those skills yet. <laughs> I know. He didn't have those <laughs> skills yet. It's a particular yet. set of skills. It's a particular yes. set of skills. But, yeah. you know, if they remake this movie, they need to have him in as that character again. And we need to see some awesome fighting. I want Liam Neeson so, to be the voice of the beast in the remake. Uh, um, <laughs> Alton, but, go ahead. So, so speaking of extracurricular study, okay, this is a popular thing that I have said from time to time. Um, and I am going to draw allusions to Star Wars, A-L-L right um i am a firm believe i am a firm believer that media should be able to stand on its own i also am a firm believer that and hopefully this will be a positive thing kroll does deserve a remake because i believe that there is a lot of content there that was not properly explored i believe that it could actually represent a larger franchise and I believe that the failing that Kroll has is, funnily enough, one of the big similar failings that I feel Star Wars 789 has, which is that in order to understand what is happening, you do have to have that outside frame of reference. Otherwise, go into the film being willing to very much read between the lines and just allow allow yourself breaks throughout the movie to explore the imagination of what scenes could have been because oftentimes you do not get to return to them even though there's a lot of meat left on the bone and a lot of really really cool things that could be explored Wait, mm -hmm. yeah i, I, mean, I totally it, agree with that the yeah, cyclops the whole bringing the cyclops. oh my gosh there there's there's a mythos there that could they could have introduced but, he the only Cyclops there? How did he get there? That was one of the things that super stood out to me that I, I stopped and paused the film and turned to Tasha. was like, oh, that's really cool. And then never paid off. When you no. very first start to talk about the Cyclops, they say they gave up their eyes so that they could see the future. Yeah. Gave up one eye so they could see the future instead. I'm like, that's yeah. a cool mythos. That's an awesome idea. Like, and, I'm going to steal that and use that somewhere. But then it never comes Yeah, up. well, the, the part that I adore about the Cyclops story is is that they were betrayed so yeah. they gave up their eye to see the future but the only future they can see is the moment of their death and what's what i felt the movie really didn't explore was imagine 
uh, in a remake, right? Some, some incredible warrior. And you can show him just taking on 20 slayers by himself fearlessly. And they're just like, how can he fight like that? Well, it's not his time to die. And yeah, he exactly. knows it. Yeah, and he was, knows it. And so he can exploit that. What I said. And it would build so much tension then when they get to like the end. Granted, you'd have to change his death scene and the meaning of his death scene. But it would mean it would increase the tension so much when they'd be like, hey, come on, come with us. We're going here. And he's like, no. I can't yeah, like, yeah, this is the moment. Then I, I mean, people would freak out like, Holy cow, you know? Well, and it would, and it would allow you to raise your stakes for your heroes earlier on yeah. because you could present your slayers as something really fearsome and terrible. You watch yeah. people just get decimated, not just in the, Oh no, we're having a battle and people die and it's not impactful, mm-hmm. but in a very real, like, no, we sent a hundred men to fight two slayers and none of them yeah. came back. Yeah. So but then how, why is this why is this Cyclops going out and fighting fifty of these things on his own? We've defeated Cyclops. They know when it's their time to die, and this isn't it. So they can fight like exactly. Yeah. You're but it. how amazing of a scene would that be to see like forty slayers coming in and then Cyclops is standing boldly with his trident, just destroying the this swarm of slayers. Oh yeah. And you know, Colwyn and his and you know the uh, the the other thieves or rogues are sitting there watching this, you know. And I can't remember the, the magician's name at the moment. Uh, Ergo. Yeah, Ergo is at his feet, and he's standing over him boldly, protecting him. Mm-hmm. You know, even though Ergo thought he was going to die, that would be fantastic. Other than him charging in and throwing the the trident. So this was one of the. I I don't want to jump too deep down this hole because this is something that I'm hoping we can do at the end, which is changes that we would make if it was rebooted, redone. Yeah. Oh, I'm so ready for that yeah. conversation. And I would. <laughs> and this is the one thing I'm only going to mention it now because it's relevant to what we've just been talking about. I would combine the guardian figure and the cyclops because that produces a much more powerful guardian figure. Mm. That when he gives up the ghost, it is huge because he's been sitting here kicking butt saving the day taking on tons of these guys all the time now he's gone you're going into the castle what are you gonna do friend mm-hmm. yeah the only problem by doing that is you get rid of at least because in the book you know yinir is important because this is true the beasts came before and that's something you don't know this is not the first time the beast you know, his race has been here before. In the movie, it kind of sounds like he's singular, but in the book, it's a race. And they came during his time. And that's so that's why he knows all these is, things. That's how the Cyclops could have given up their eyes because they were the yep. first civilization. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I can I dance mean, around this for days. I got right. right. <laughs> I know, yeah. We all can. That's why. We're no, I, I, and, and, and again, Elton, brilliant storyteller. You're, you're so fantastic at it. I I politely disagree with that move because That's I fine. think I think the sacrifice of Yanir is is unique in the film. Uh, Yanir gives up his life so that they can find the location of the fortress. Yeah. Um, and and I realize we're speaking about this movie and we haven't really given and, and a high enough matter. context for anybody yeah. to follow this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but sorry. but but the ship itself is a fortress known as the Black Fortress, inside of which is the beast, this giant shape-shifting semi-magical creature. And, this the, creature and the fortress teleports daily to a new location. At dawn, planet. at dawn, on a planet with two suns, Tatooine, which on a planet with two suns, uh, it, it 
teleports at dawn to another random location on the planet. So you have 20, well, you have a full day. I don't, I'm not going to say 24 hours, it's Kroll, but you have a full day to get to the fortress and get inside or it's going to change locations on you. And Yanir, uh, they run at, they go to one seer who can tell them where the fortress is, but the, but the beast blocks that seer's vision. They go to, they take that seer on a perilous journey to a temple where the beast cannot oppose his vision. But while they're in combat, the beast being uh, a deceptive and conniving master of the slayers sends in a shapeshifter, a changeling to take the, to kill the seer and take its place, which it does successfully. That means they just lost their ability to figure out where the fortress is. Um, they, they eventually find uh, the doppel, they, they figure out the doppelganger and they kill it and they move on. Uh, but Yanir has one more trick up his sleeve. There is a legendary person known as the Widow of the Web, and she is Yanir's long lost love. Yeah, he. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the whole movie. I way. think there is so much depth there, and we will talk about that. <laughs> this is why. This is why I, scenes. This it's is this is why I think combining those two would be so powerful, though, because he is the guardian figure, having this huge superhuman strength, this ability to have great combat, and he's got all the connections, he's got all the things. But in order to be able to save the heroes, he's got to confront that bit of himself that he's kind of pushed to the side, mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, but there's also something powerful in Rel the Cyclops. By the way, his name is Rel. They say it like two times in the movie, and the credits don't even have it. It just says the Cyclops. Yeah. Um, and in the card game, I have the card game still. In the card <laughs> game, his name is wrong, but that's another story. Oh, uh, wow. But yeah, it, it's they spelled it Quell, Q-U-E-L. That's not his name. His name is Rel. Uh, but anyway. The, the, the important part about the Cyclops mythos is not only did they give up an eye to see the future and they were bamboozled and uh, they, they can only see the time of their death, but if they oppose that vision, they will bring upon themselves great pain. And so the yeah. Cyclops are conditioned to not oppose, that, that they know when they're going to die, they know when they're not going to die, uh, which I think is a great point that you brought up earlier. I think that's fantastic. But they also know when they're going to die and they've been trained as a people not to fight it. But Rel makes the clear decision to oppose his fate and, and, and he saves the team in doing so, but he does suffer a terrible death. Yeah, uh, and they really gloss over that in the movie. I think it's yeah. in one line. Yeah, say a that. Titch, the boy explains it. He, exp- he yeah. Again, yeah. this movie is full of exposition in three seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they give you three seconds of exposition and they move on. But um, but Rel opposes the vision, dies horribly, but he gets the team inside the fortress, and that's what matters. And I think if you combine Rel and Yanir into the same character, you can't have that moment, at least not in a meaningful way. Yeah, and and. You would also lose the reason I love the whole thing of the hero of the web is it's implied that Yanir is somewhat of an immortal. Yeah. Like he's like Gandalf. He's the ancient he's, one. Yeah, he's been around for a long, long time. And then he winds up sacrificing his life just to relay the information of where the te- where the uh the fortress is going to be. And in a very unique way. I can't think of another story. Where and what happens is he makes a pact with the widow of the web, and she kind of says, You don't have the ability to control time, but he needs to get out of there. And there's this big spider, uh, beautifully uh, stop motion animated for, for its time, yes, for its time. Um, the and crystal by, spider, yeah, by Ray Harryhausen's protege, I guess, um, who, who did that. And 
she pours the sands of this hourglass that she's shattered into his hands. And when, the, when he has no more sand in his hand, he will die. Yeah. So this guy is trying to get out of the web and go all the way back down the mountain. And he basically just gets within earshot of the team and hollers the <laughs> sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. He yells the location and then dies. He runs out of the sand in his hand. And I was just like, man, I can't think of another story that does, does that particular has that those particular beats. Well, and not only that, the widow of the web sacrificed herself by doing that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there is a super deep unspoken story there. Um, I, so I'm with you. I believe Kroll deserves a remake. In fact, the reason I have sort of become amped up and extra passionate about it in, in like the last six months or the last couple of years is because my inner compass is saying that given the current zeitgeist, um, we are moving ever forward to a moment where someone is going to announce they're remaking Kroll or they're revisiting Kroll. Um, for those of you who might not know, I have a filmmaking background and uh, at, at an amateur level, at an indie level, uh, and a, a couple of my film friends, well, one film friend specifically and I have talked at length for years about how we would remake it, whether we, you know, as both as a movie and or as a series, um, because there is so many open doors. There are so many hooks for story. Um, the, the Cyclops is an alien from another planet. They mention it so briefly in the movie and they don't focus on it that almost no one even thinks about it. Yanir says that the Cyclops are from another world and they used to have two eyes like men do. Then he goes into the, into the mythology of it all. He goes into the legend of it. Uh, and the part about them seeing their own death is the part that sticks out. What people don't realize is they are alien to Kroll. So now Kroll has the beast and the slayers invading, and they also have at least one Cyclops, maybe more. Um, you know, they're, the, the widow of the web has the same name as the main woman in the flick, Lissa, Princess Lissa. Um, and... In the prophecy, because of course, films like this have a prophecy, uh, in the prophecy, it refers to a, wo- uh, a girl of ancient name. And so the, the name Lissa is referred to as ancient. Yanir is referred to as the old one. And he makes a quip about, well, not as old as all that. Um, but, um, but he is well known enough that when he comes out of the Granite Mountains, it signifies things to other people, including the alien Cyclops, who yeah. says, when I'd heard that the old one had come out of the Granite Mountains, I knew my time had come. You know, things like that. It's just, there are so many hooks that they touch on for a second and they move on because for the purposes of a two-hour film, the journey is a prince must save, to, must save his princess and liberate the world. That is, that is the trunk. And everybody that he encounters that is part of his team is helping him to fulfill this mission. And they end up forming a team on the road, again, a common trope, but, um, but it's a, it's a team of, of like, um, uh, uh, an absent minded, uh, what's what I'm looking for? A clumsy, clumsy magician. <laughs> you have uh, a now orphaned, uh, seer in training if you will and a a seer's apprentice who now needs a family uh you have a band of thieves that join the team you have a cyclops and of course you have the wise old man and the all-around hero prince and and they they follow this trunk line but 
when you listen to every character's story as briefly as it's mentioned, all of a sudden this, um, pardon the expression, but spider web of connections branches out immediately. And remaking this film as a modern movie could do it some great justice, making it a series like a Netflix series or even just a YouTube series oh, yeah. would yeah. do it significant justice. And I have all sorts of fan theories. I want to, for the sake of time, and I know I've been dominating this and I apologize, <laughs> but for the sake of time, I would like to move into like a lightning round kind of thing. I want to ask you guys to name three of your favorite things from this film, whether you liked it or not, three of your favorite things. Okay. I'm going to start with Mr. Haspel, go to Dan and then go to Alton. Cause I think that is the level of difficulty from easiest <laughs> to hardest for finding your three favorite things. Right. So uh, lightning round Haspel, three favorite things go. Okay. I would have to say the entire widow of the web sequence. Uh, I loved everything about it. Everything it's, it's a, it's like a tribute to Ray Harryhausen. It's, it's really spooky. It's very creepy. The entire conversation between the and the widow is you're just going, what is there? It's almost like they're talking about something that's next level. And you're only, it's almost like they're two Greek gods talking and you're understanding things on a mortal level. And they're not talking about what you think they're talking about. So I love that. I love the whole thing about the Cyclops. And then there's another scene where the beast is trying to seduce Lissa. And they have this conversation about power versus love. Yes. And, and it's so brief. And you're just like, it's frustrating because you're just like, she's standing her ground. She's doing really well. And, and it works. And it's, but it's just like, oh, you know, it, again, it's, it could be explored more and, it, and it's not. But those are my three favorite things about, well, there's a fourth. I'm going to cheat. The glaive. <laughs> the glaive. The glaive. So hang on, hang on a second. You said the widow of the web. You said um, Cyclops. The, the, the Cyclops. Oh, the Cyclops. And then the, the, the power yeah. versus love debate, yes. which, is, which is a great scene. Uh, and then honorable mention. The Glaive. Mother truckers. Yeah, dude, The Glaive. Uh, awesome. Excellent list. Dan, three favorite things. Go. You know, I, mine on, on the top there is that seduction scene where the beast is trying to seduce her to pick him. And, you know, he, he even goes, he, he sends someone, you know, the, the blonde girl in, in the, the camp. Her name is Bella. Showing, yeah. And he's showing Lissa that scene and she's like, it's not going to happen. Um, that is such there was so much potential. Like, like Mike said, there's lots of potential there and they didn't follow it up because you got to, I would imagine this would, this has happened day after day after day that he's trying to get her to pick him because as we know, you know, uh, don't spoil it yet. Don't spoil it yet. We're going to get there. Prophecy, you know, whoever she marries, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so he's trying and she continues to reject him over and over. And, and I would love to see the frustration from the beast because you don't really see that. But I would like to see that that was more than just that one time. And um, I, think, I think that scene too, to, as a quick interruption, it reminds me so much of a film that came out. It may have came out earlier. I don't know. Legend. Legend oh yeah, of Tom Legend. Cruise. Yeah. Darkness trying yeah. to seduce um, Mia well, Sarah. Yeah, sir. Yeah. Um, and Tim Curry did a fantastic job as the Darkness oh, in that movie. Oh, yeah, the rest of it I could care less. Tom Cruise, pff, they could have picked a much better lead. But my opinion, 
Tim Curry, fantastic. Anyways, uh, the Cyclops. I love the Cyclops. Fantastic character. I hated his death. Yeah, he gets squished in a door. Come on. Give him a more... Uh, fantastic death in that but okay well hang on he uh, got shot he got shot like three times by a weapon that was a one-shot kill on everybody else i know he got he, shot he three times shot. and yeah. then he got crushed in the door yeah but still i would have loved to see him dying by continuing to get shot and overwhelmed maybe yeah uh, it, again it was the 80s i think i think I that well we'll get yeah i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt okay no, all right fine. so you, so then, so the seduction scene the yeah. um cyclops and what's your third you know, as much as I did love the, the lady in the web scene, fantastic. Uh, my my other one is uh, the scene with the you know where Cohen's in the the quicksand trying to rescue that guy, because you see the anguish and frustration. Because even though he's just met these guys and they're scoundrels, he's as a king and a leader, he cares about them so much. He's, he's willing to wade into quicksand and desperately try to save him. And that just spoke volumes of his character. Love it. Love it. Alton, your three favorite things. So mine are a little less concrete than what the two of you have brought up so far. Um, but I also think that it speaks to the strengths that the film does have and the potential that it has, right? Um, the first is that I do love the visual motifs that they consistently bring up over the course of the film. Um, whenever we are talking about our hero and heroine in their moments of glory, when they are rising to their potential, there is always flame involved. When we are talking about our villain as he is trying to entrap and enslave and make everything terrible, Everything that he has is very skeletal, very bare. It's clear that there that he doesn't have much more than exactly what he has, right? Um, and then there are other visual and color motifs throughout the film that I noticed at a very high level, and I'd have to rewatch in order to be a little more specific on it. But I do believe that, especially in a media like film, medium like film, it is very important that you have motifs that allow your audience to be able to engage with the content in at a subconscious level to impart deeper meaning. And I think that that is one of the few things that may have helped save this film after it has been clearly so severely <laughs> cut down. Um, uh, the other two things are tied into um, an idea called castle on the hill, um, which is, I actually very much appreciate their style of exposition for the most part, which is to say, these are things that are just in the universe and they don't try to shove it down your throat and give you a ton of explanation. They also don't try to like over mystify it and hide it behind the curtain. It's just kind of like, this is a thing. This is what it is. And everybody goes, Oh yeah. And so you, the audience participating in the story are going, Oh yeah, everybody else is good with this. I have enough information to have a context clue as to what it means. And I know that I need to pay attention to it for when it happens later. And so then when things happen that do have a setup, it's very easy to follow um, and it still leaves a lot of room to be able to explore. And I think that that's the third big thing is that I do love that there was enough thought put into the world building of this, that there is still plenty to explore. I believe that um, one of the great strengths of both Star Wars and to a degree Star Trek as a franchise are this idea that they 
historically were very careful to keep the scope of any one piece of media to a very defined area, but still leave lots of little things that go out to other places, right? That are not necessary for you to understand the scope of this story, but that if you have that extracurricular material, it enriches it in a meaningful way. Um, now, there are a lot of flaws in this film, as you know, have happened in 789 in Star Wars in particular, where there are pieces that you have to have outside information in order to understand. That's a problem. I, my goal is not to say you need to understand it, but rather that your understanding is enriched, right? Stories have deeper meaning. You, have, you feel like you're in on a joke and that you understand something that other people might not be able to catch, not because it's necessary to understand it, but because it adds value and meaning to what the characters are doing and how the plot is progressing. And those, those two items in tandem uh, encompass that idea of, of castle on the hill, which is to say that the world is robust enough, but we understand our scope. We're going to mention this. It is not relevant to the scope of this film, but if you understand it and you know about it, then it deepens your appreciation of what's happening and leaves you plenty to explore after you have finished watching. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I'm kind of... I mean, everything you guys have mentioned are reasons why I love this movie and, and reasons why it wowed me as a child um, and, and still entertains me as an adult. And I think that having watched it the umpteen dozen times that I've seen it, uh, and, and most recently when I watched it recently, my buddy, uh, who's the, the other huge Kroll fan, uh, yeah, there's only two of us, three of us with Mike, um, but uh, we watched the movie it's a two hour film. It took us like over four hours to watch it because we kept slowing it down, watching it frame for frame, breaking things down. And we just analyzed it. And we saw things that we had never seen before that we'd never noticed before. And they were small, but some of them actually added value um, and, and raised new questions and things like that. Um, what I love about this film is that you can, you can look at it one time and you'll have an immediate impression. And you'll think you know it. And if you give it a chance and you watch it a second time, all of a sudden new things pop out. And it's not even just like, oh, I never noticed that that person was wearing a necklace or that color was in the background or, you know, it's not even stuff like that. It's like all new exposition, context clues, uh, value in the film that pops out the second time you watch it. And then the third time, if, if, you can turn off that part in your brain that as a modern viewer says, oh, this is such hokum. Oh, those special effects don't hold up. <laughs> you know, that kind of nonsense, right? They um, didn't hold up in 83. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 83, there were lots of effects that were just like, I mean, we're talking about like barely passing. I love talking about the production of Kroll because so many things happened that were great and so many things happened that were just like, how did, how did this movie survive? How did they ever mm. get out of that trap? But uh, one of the things I love about this film is that you can watch it over and over again for 37 years and you can still find stuff you never noticed before. Um, I also love that, uh, like one of my favorite things in the movie, again, the Cyclops making the appearance again, right? Um, because the Cyclops is so understated and yet has obviously such a rich background. And the book, 
doesn't really cover it more than the movie does, although they give Rel more opportunity to speak and interact, they don't really go into his backstory. Um, and so the Cyclops is, I think the reason we all, I think one of the reasons we like it so much is that the Cyclops has been portrayed in our own mythos, in our own mythology and legend here on earth. And it's been portrayed certain ways in Harryhausen films and even in something as recent as Gentleman Broncos. Um, you know, in fact, I think the Cyclops in Gentleman Broncos were inspired by the Kroll Cyclops, but anyway, uh, and, and they always have sort of the same feel overall video games, movies, books, but the Cyclops in Kroll has a distinctly different feel and a distinct yet indescribable purpose in the world. But you know that the Cyclops has purpose. In fact, of all the characters in the movie, other than Colwyn, the Cyclops probably has the most concretely felt purpose in the world. Um, and uh, more so than any of the other characters. And then third uh, is, this is going to take us back to, uh, to the Widow of the Web, but it's not the scene. It's the story. Uh, Yanir and Lissa of the Web, to be clear, Lissa the Widow, they have, for, <laughs> you, you, they, don't dis they don't tell you how long it's been, but you get the distinct feeling that it's an ancient past, that it is past that is much longer than the average yeah. life cycle on the planet. Yeah. Um, and they have just a tragic, heartbreaking history. Uh, but that history, and I'm going to throw this fan theory out there. I was going to do a whole bunch of fan theories, and I, <laughs> but, but for time we can't. But this one, this one I want to share. Uh, the prophecy that is mentioned in, in the movie Kroll at the beginning and at the end, uh, the prophecy says that a girl of ancient name will uh, choose a king and together they will rule the, the world and their son will rule the galaxy. That's the prophecy. And the, the Lissa, the, the, the heroine of the film, she, is, she has this name, Lissa, but so does the widow. And we discover that when, they're, when, when Yanir is desperate and trying to get the widow to help him into the nest. Uh, and so he's Yanir and she's Lissa, the widow. She has this ancient name. The fan theory that my buddy and I share, and I talked to Dan about this, is that Yanir and Lissa were the original fulfillers of the prophecy, or rather they were the ones in the right place at the right time to fulfill. Well, and, and you also find out that they had a son. In that, in and that. you find out they had a son, yeah. which is which a very is important Which is also story. in the prophecy. Yeah. But but just like Frodo in the ring, it's not enough to be in the right place at the right time to be the chosen one, Neo. You have to choose to continue being the chosen one. It's mm -hmm. not a one-time thing. It's, a, it's an everyday thing, right? It's an every moment choice. And we don't get the full story, but what we know is that Yanir got ambition and duty all up in his eyes, and he ends up leaving Lyssa. Lyssa who feels betrayed and heartbroken when she gives birth to their son, which Yanir never knew she was even pregnant. So that's when he left. Um, she, she found out she was pregnant after he was gone. She gives birth. It's, it's a son and she murders her son. And uh, because of her rage, her rage needed a victim. And because of that, she is cursed 
to be, there is some, there, there's this thing called the law of the web and we're, it's never explained how it all happens. It, it's never explained who enforces it. it. There's just this, this legend, this myth, this, this, uh, this natural force that's just part of the natural order that has confined her to this prison of loneliness, her and the crystal spider. Mm-hmm. And no one who's ever entered the web has survived. No one until Yanir. Um, my buddy and I think that Yanir and Lissa, the, the widow, were the original fulfillers of the prophecy, but they failed to complete it. I adore that. And because that's, of that- it's really cool. Thank you. And because of that, the prophecy basically recycled. It had to start again. Because we find out in the book, and in the, in, of all things, the CD liner notes of all things, mm-hmm. um, we find out that the beast- had come to crawl before. Mm-hmm. And Yanir is marked as a descendant, quote unquote, of the people who drove off the beast in the Slayers the first time. So, and we also find out that, the, the, as Dan mentioned, the beast is not a singular entity. In so many of these 80s films, and in so many sword and sorcery films, period, you can even look at, well, Sauron has an explanation. But anyway, um, so many of these villains, so many of these like seemingly omnipotent creatures are one offs. They are unique, they are singular, they're not part of anything. They are just themselves. They're a malevolent force and we got to stop them. And that's the way it feels in Kroll. The beast feels singular and unique. It's not the case. In the book, they explain that it's a member of a race of creatures known as the beasts, plural, because they don't have a better term for it. Um, so he, had, he and, and I think they even made mention that it was that same beast that came to Kroll before, but I don't know that to be true. The point is, Kroll had been invaded once before and they won, but it was anciently. And then time had gone on, Kroll got back to normal and the beast invades again. And it's because the prophecy is in full swing again. And, and it has to do with Colwyn and Lyssa. And well, that alone, like right there, that is one of my all time favorite things about Kroll that the Yanir and Lyssa the Widow story could be true. Yeah. Oh, and not only that, if they've attacked before, it could explain why the beasts have space travel and everyone on Kroll is still kind of modern, uh, medieval times where they're still riding horses and stuff. They, they were decimated and they're having to rebuild yeah. and start mm-hmm. over pretty much. But, there, um, but there's and, also suggestion that they, that they benefited from the technology yeah. because, and, and I realized I didn't make the, I didn't put this in my list, but, but one of my all time favorite things about Kroll is that there's so much of it that feels familiar and yet is alien. Yeah. So like, like the armor of the, of the knights and everything that are in the two different kingdoms. Yeah. It's this plastoid stormtrooper esque like armor done up to look like knights in a way. Yeah. Um, the swords look like swords we would build, except that the, um, the density groove, everyone calls it the blood groove. It's not really a blood groove. It's actually for stability and, and to prevent the sword from breaking. But um, that density groove that we have in most of our medieval swords, theirs is a full cutout, which can't be explained, but that's just that, that, that was their technology. Um, you talked earlier about like their electro swords, right? Because yeah. in, the, in the movie, anytime they fight a slayer and their weapons clash, there is sparking and lightning. Uh, my buddy and I believe that that's actually the energy of the slayers. It's not the energy of the people on Kroll, but Kroll has natural magic in the environment. So it, they could have weapons like that, but there's obviously like, there are things about the world that are familiar to us and yet smack of being alien because it's still another planet. And I love that. Yeah. 
Well, they definitely relied heavily on tropes. I mean, as you're watching this, you see the tropes coming up. That's why they oh, absolutely. did no absolutely. explanations. Um, and they, they did come off of Star Wars quite a bit. And it's like, oh, yeah, people will just believe that because they believe in lightsabers. But you know uh, the piece of extracurricular material I look forward to consuming the most? Tell me. The riff track. <laughs> I went to that event. I went to that event. Yeah. You can download it right now. It's four bucks on their site, and you can sync it with the app and watch it side by side I, with the film. I did not it is know hilarious. they had a riff track, so now, now it was, I it was really good. To... Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah. I, I thought for a moment you were going to say the Atari game, which I have, <laughs> and which I played. I played last week, and I and I finally. It's a hard game. It has yeah. it has four scenes, and it's a hard game. <laughs> I want to take a quick moment and to mention something we we haven't we've only briefly talked about, uh, and I won't go deep on this, but the score. Um, oh and my god! Something I had completely forgotten. So when I rewatched it, it's James Horner did the score, and yes. in a way, it's like his practice track for all the scores to come, because there is so much Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, but, but Rathacon happened first. Happened first. But it, but it's like, I'm like, oh, this is the Motara Nebula. Oh, this is Reliant versus Enterprise. This is this. But you can You're also right. hear Aliens. You can also hear the Abyss. You can hear the the uh, Mask of Zorro. Um, and there's a lot of also Battle Beyond the Stars, which came oh, Battle Beyond the Stars. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> Battle Beyond the Stars slash Space Raiders because, you know, people had to steal stuff. Yeah. And so the, the score is like this un, undiscovered little gem. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's very good. I argue that the Kroll soundtrack is absolutely James Horner's best complete work. If you take the work as a whole for any film he scored, I argue that Kroll is the best thing he ever made. Um, and it is, it's phenomenal. It, it is excellent music. It has that swashbuckling. It has that, um, that Errol Flynn-esque feel to it that we keep coming back to. It has very Arthurian uh, tones to it, but it also has ethereal tones to it. It has alien sounds to it. Um, the love theme, the love theme for Colin mm -hmm. and Lissa, adore it. I actually, I listen to the soundtrack on the regular, like, like now. When, I, when I'm teaching and my students are working and I need to like give them some time, I'll mute my audio for them. And on my side, I play a Kroll soundtrack so I can focus on what I'm doing. And it's, <laughs> it's excellent. And you're absolutely right. It sounds a ton like Wrath of Khan. I was actually surprised when I heard very similar refrains and phrases in Wrath of Khan that I really knew from Kroll, even though Kroll came out after Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we are at the end of our episode. And if you can't tell... There are a million things we could talk about where Kroll is okay. concerned. I actually would love, here's what I want to do. Uh, and this is a suggestion. And maybe you crawlers can tell us if we should do this or not. But I would love to take an episode where uh, especially Alton, but anybody can tell me what they don't like about Kroll. And I believe nine times out of 10, I can tell you why it's awesome. <laughs> so I, let's, let's get the emails rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see this happen now. Go watch Kroll. You can, you can buy it or rent it on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, you can order it on Blu-ray or DVD. Uh, it's really easy to get your hands on. Check it out or, or you know, buy the riff track and then sync it up with the video. Uh, but go check it out. 
You tell us what you hate about Kroll, what's cheesy to you. Or what you things, love. Or what you love. Or what you love. Um, I would love to celebrate what you love, and I would love to explain to you why the things you hate about Kroll are actually awesome. Are you Kroll explaining <laughs> again? He is. Uh, I, I am champion explaining. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, with oh, this, it's a blast uh, as always. This, this was tons of fun. Um, unfortunately, an hour is just not enough time. I mean, it is not. With movies like these, uh, I think we need to do more of episodes like this. Uh, there are tons of movies that came out in that early 80s period mm-hmm. that are fantastic movies at the same time. There are moments that you could just, they're cringeworthy, yeah, well, yeah. cringeworthy <laughs> right. at the same time. Um, but there's still movies we love. Uh, there's also movies that came out in the 90s. Uh, one that I would love for us to do is Army of Darkness. Oh, yes, uh, please. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. But fantastic movie, but it's, it's you know. Another one I haven't seen. Oh, <laughs> even <Wow>. better. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Well, guess what? I know, <laughs> I know what our next movie is now. Um, but yeah, uh, I think we should do this at least once a month, maybe. Uh, yeah. We can bring Mike back. I know he he's a great movie guy and knows tons of it. But uh, this was tons of fun. Uh, let's let's uh, have you listeners uh, send in your challenge emails, uh, whether you like it or hate it. I I, I want to see Krebs be able to to spin these around. I'm sure he mm-hmm. can. But it would be lots of fun to do. And uh, as always, uh, we'll catch you next time. And remember, heroes, tell your story, whatever may come. And internet, please remember, be epic, don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you.